This is Catalog and Cocktails. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's Wednesday once again, and it's time for Catalog and Cocktails, an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at data.world, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm principal scientist here at data.world, and it's Wednesday, middle of the week, end of that day where we can now start taking a break. It's almost end of the year where I know we're going to start taking more breaks here. And Holidays. we are just super excited about kind of uh, uh, start. Uh, this is our last episode with the guests for this season. Uh, and next season, next episode, we're going to have a recap of what we've learned in the last uh, almost four or five months uh, for season two. But today I want to I'm really excited about today because after all these past episodes, we've been talking about very technical data and metadata and governance and catalogs and knowledge graphs and stuff. But one aspect that we really haven't been talking about is, is about meaning about knowledge and actually get a little bit more philosophical in a way. And I'm super excited about our guest today, which is Steve Whitla. He has been specializing in the visualization of complex ideas. Uh, he runs this consultancy called visual meaning. It's a specialist consultancy that enables organizational transformation through creating that shared meaning. And I think we're going to get into some really interesting discussions today. Steve, uh, thank you for being here. And I know it's late. We're doing this live and you're in, I think, in Oxford. Or Thanks for being here so late. Not at all. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Well, also, just uh, Steve was, uh, uh, I think, our, our colleague, uh, friend, uh, Dave McComb, was a guest. And he called out Steve as the next guest. So that's why we're here. So we're really excited about that. So, hey, let's kick it off with our, our Tell and toast. So what are we drinking and what are we toasting for? Steve, how about you? Well, it's kind of late here and I'm an early riser. So I'm just on water, plain old water, because that's just how exciting I am. Um, <laughs> I was going to toast to trying to get to a COVID-free Christmas, uh, which I was quite excited about because the days are running down. But my little one seems to have come down with something. We'll get a test result tomorrow. So fingers crossed it's clear, but let's wait and see. Well, let's toast for things going to be clear over there. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. How about you, Tim? Uh, I will, uh, well, first of all, I'll say what I'm drinking. Uh, I've been working through, if you've listened to a previous couple episodes, I've been working through this advent calendar that we have, Dated Our World advent calendar for 25 days of whiskey. And I'm actually drinking the Smoke Wagon Small Batch Kentucky Bourbon, um, high rye content bourbon. It's a little bit polarizing, though. It's got kind of a weird taste. I like it. I'm one of the people who like it, likes it. So I wonder if those who are listening, if you've ever tried this before, do you like this bourbon or not? Uh, and uh, I will say, um, you know, toasting, obviously, Steve, you know, wishing, wishing you all the best. Hopefully you hear good results there, fingers crossed. Uh, and also, um, you know, just uh, on, on the sort of the COVID front here, my son has been in remote school for the last year and a half, uh, and he is going to go finally to in-person first grade because he was, you know, uh, you know, remote for all of kindergarten and remote for the first half of first uh, first grade. He's going to be in person next year. So very, very excited about that. Uh, fingers crossed that nothing messes that up either. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm having so right now I'm in uh, I'm in Colombia. I'm visiting my parents and I'm having a very traditional rum that people have here. It's called Ron Viejo de Caldas and just with rum and soda. So that's my drink today. And I'm going to be uh, toasting for just being able to be in family. So and be able to go travel a little bit and everything. So, hey, cheers, everybody. Cheers. So we got our funny question of the day, which is what are better talking machines, Kit or Johnny Five? And we, <laughs> I had to look up Johnny Five. Remember, remember Johnny Five? It was a movie. What was it called? The Short Circuit, right? Five is alive. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I um, what do you yeah, think, I do Steve? Movies, but I, I do remember both of them. Um, I think you have to go with the voice, don't you? I mean, Kit just had an outstanding voice, and plus, yeah, it was a car and it was indestructible. And I was, I don't know, five at the time. So yeah, I think there's no contest there. It's definitely Kit. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I had to look up the both of her voices, and, and the Johnny Five voice just got so annoying very quickly. So, 
I think that's hilarious that you guys both know Kit so well. And like for me, like I never really watched uh, Knight Rider as a kid or anything like that. And so like I've kind of I just missed that whole thing. So I know all about Johnny Five and I know like very little about Kit. So I feel like the odd man out here. Don't shoot me. (laughs) Well, all right, let's kick it off with our on his no BS discussion here. And so, Steve, if if we want machines to be able to understand each other, we really need to create and understand that meaning within an organization. Um, so honest, no BS. How do we create shared meaning within an organization? Well, that is a fantastic question. I, I just wish that was a question that was being asked more often in more organizations because it, it seems to me people just jump straight to the machines, right? Because technology is going to save everything and yeah. Technology is the future, so let's just get the machines talking to each other and it's all just going to work. And we just completely overlook the fact that those machines, uh, they live inside tribes. They live inside silos. And those tribes, those groups of people have their own language. They have their own culture. They have their own traditions. And that gets reflected right in the machines. It gets reflected in the schemas of the way the data is organized. It gets reflected in the the language that gets put into the machines. And we just sort of seem to overlook that fact, um, which is which is a shame. So how do you get shared meaning? There's a, the, the simple principle that we keep coming back to over and over again, which is, um, you know, I've been basically running off this, trying to d- generate value for the last 15, 20 years off this really simple principle, which is meaning is when you can connect to somebody's experience. So if you take a symbol of any kind, you know, a word, a picture, a, uh, drawing, uh, anything that can have meaning, it has meaning if you can connect it back to something you've got experience of. Um, and often people just, just just lose that because once you get to a certain level in organization, your your language has to become quite abstract. And it's much, much easier to go to a meeting and listen to all the abstract words. And it just becomes like the water you know, that you're, that you're swimming in. It's there that you breathe. And you just assume that other people mean the same thing by those abstract words as, as I do. You know, everyone's talking about capabilities and services and requirements. And, you know, it's all the same jargon. It must mean the same thing, right? But how do you know? How do you know it does? How do you know that their experiences are similar to your experiences just because you're using the same words? That's interesting, Stephen. You know, one thing you mentioned as you as you explained that was, you know, machines live within tribes and then they pick up these biases and these faults that those tribes have. And I think a lot of times when people think about how machines are coming to play, whether it's things like machine learning or, or that sort of thing, they assume that the machines must be less biased, right? Because therefore, you know, well, they're just machines. They're not they don't they don't they don't come in with their biases. Can you expand a little bit more about what you mean when you say something like that? Well, so, so if you, one of the mistakes I think we make when we're talking about meaning is we we treat it in a very, um, in a very technical sort of way. So certainly, um, data people and IT people, it's all just about semantics, right? It's you know, um, like glass. Glass is a word; it means one of these. Well, well, does it, or does it mean the window, or does it mean you know, something completely different? Is it like a failed product from a few years back? Is it you know, book? That's one of these, isn't it? Is it you, you know, as if that's the only thing that can have meaning. Um, and, and one of the principles we apply is that um, there's two sides to meaning. There's that whole substantive side, which is easy and we understand, and you can read it in dictionaries and so on. There's this whole other side, which is about the the identity that's expressed in words, and that's something that just doesn't seem, doesn't really get talked about at all. So if I'm using one of these abstract words. Um, uh, and as I say, there's this issue of how, how do we know if it's referring to the same thing in the world? How do you know it's not just that I need to use that word to show that I'm, you know, pseudo, uh, that, what my tribal affiliation is? How do you know I'm not just using it as a, as a, a bit of BS um, to show that I can wield this jargon successfully to try and disguise? In other words, how do you know it's not me expressing an identity level thing about something that, you know, and I'll give you a... a um, an example, so it's a story I often tell to, to bring this to life a bit with a, a client I worked in with ages ago, um, where we were trying to draw out this vision they had for where, where they were going to become a you know, new digital organization. We tend to work with a lot of you know, public sector and, and legacy you know, old organizations. You're trying to, to, to modernize. Um, and people have been there for a very, very long time. And there was this concept that they had um, called, uh, uh, it was called the green box 
And nobody really knew what the green box was, but it was apparently a very central part of their vision. And I kept going around asking, what actually is this green box? Because here it is. And it had its own web page, it had everything. And it was all it was, it was to do with um, uh, um, industry collaboration. But why was it called green? Why what, was what this a green box? And eventually I found somebody who was in the meeting when that concept originally uh, was created. And basically what it was, was the most senior person in the organization was in the meeting and had a green marker pen and then put this green box around a bunch of concepts on the whiteboard and says, this is like, this is the most important thing that we need to concentrate on, but then was called away to another meeting. Right, now this person's schedule's really busy, so they don't come back. So now we have to adopt the green box, but we don't have a word for it. <laughs> it just, it becomes the green box. In other words, the, the language is actually to do with who the most powerful person in the room is, because, and you know that, you know, somebody walks into your meeting, picks up a, a pen and says, this is really important and leaves that does not get rubbed off the whiteboard, right? That ends up turning into a PowerPoint and then it turns into a business case and it turns into a project plan and it turns into, well, maybe it didn't even make sense the first time round, but it was that person's position or their, their tribal affiliation that, that was the real reason why it had meaning. Wow. Uh, this That phrase that you just said right now, language is connected to the most powerful person in the meeting. And this is something that we realize that, uh, we're having the discussions. We're trying to understand what things means that we all pay attention to the most important person in the meeting in the meeting. And first of all, I guess we assume that that person is right, or that is the, that, that's the definition we're going to go follow. That person again is the most powerful, important person. They leave. So then we have to keep continue. And, and I think, uh, I mean, this is, this is an interesting phenomenon that, I, that, that I'm, that I'm noticing right now. And I, I is this, I mean, what do we do about that? Is that we just is that just the way life is that we always follow the most powerful person in the meeting? Or what are what are those dynamics between people and power and meaning? Right? I mean, in, in this yeah. case, uh, semantics isn't enough, right? I, this is really interesting. I'm really starting to think of making me think about stuff I've really not thought about. It's it's just a different way of approaching. So, like, I love the fact that you guys say this is no BS, right? Yeah. So Yes, uh, it's a real shame there's not another word that doesn't have an expletive in it that we could just use like in normal conversations with clients because there's not another word that's quite like it that means quite the same thing because it's not it's not quite lying, but you, you're consciously not saying things that are true. It's more of a kind of sort of bluffing and, a, and I think it's this gap between substance and identity when you, know, when you get into a position when you know your identity means you have to say this and this or you have to be seen to be able to say fluently a bunch of stuff, but actually you don't have the substance to back it up, which is, you know, politicians, consultants, leaders, you know, you, you get put into that position reasonably often if you, you know, as you become more more um, senior and have more and more things under your under your uh, authority. But, but that gap between the two, if it doesn't get noticed, the, the interesting thing is that the, the substance stuff you can query, you know, if you've got a bunch of people in the same silo having a conversation and you're there, you can ask them, you know, what do you mean? Let's, you know, we're having, I don't know, we've got some technical people around and we're talking about, um, uh, we're creating an API, right? We've got this RESTful API and we're talking about what sort of parameters we want to expose and we want to, and we can have talk about it, right? What should those parameters be? What should we all know what we're talking about? And then you go to the next level up and it becomes where well, we're now introducing a, I don't know, a service-oriented architecture in order to enable some benefits which will lead to superior customer da 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 And that person probably has no idea what that actually means because, because they can't, right? They can't, at that level of abstraction, you can't know what all of the technical implications are of what you mean, but you can't challenge that. You can't challenge the person and say, do you know what? The things you just said, I could ask you technically what it means, but I can't say, you know, I just want to check, are you sure the reason why you're saying that isn't just because you want to adopt an identity of somebody who's more technical than you actually are. You, that's not something you can say in a meeting, even if it's true, which is why I think you know, it's a problem that it just doesn't get talked about because you can talk about it. You're challenging people's identity as soon as you get into this the tribal affiliations. Yeah. And, you know, sharing of meaning and the transfer of information is obviously a key part of what you're talking about here too. And if if a person, you know, going back to this phrase, honest, no BS, right? Like part, part of this is 
you know, the person that is expressing this idea, like you gave that example of sort of like, you know, what could be construed as jargon, but maybe that jargon means something to that particular person in that organization, right? Um, you know, part of, of sort of honest no BS is like the humility of the person conveying the information to be like, oh, well, maybe I should actually simplify this yep. and understand the context of my recipient, right? Um, but likewise, it's also the the humility or the openness of the recipient to be like, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, I don't have any clue what you're talking about right now. Can you please like that? And that they're not fearful that yeah. like they're going to chastise or that their job is at risk or anything like that. If they don't nod their head and go, oh, yeah, and scribble their pencil in the notebook. Right. And that, I mean, that, that, and that is the answer. I think the, 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 the ground for all of this is the culture that you've got in the organization. And you know, your culture descends like gravity. Your people, people observe how the people they perceive to be superior act. So all of us are, you know, in, in our lives are to some degree, we, we always have somebody who's looking up to us, even if it's, you know, it's just our kids, I don't know, but wherever you are, there's always somebody who you are acting in a leadership position to. How you model your approach to ignorance or to learning just becomes what other people comment. To. I mean, I remember this from early in my career. It really struck me how the leaders who I most looked up to were the ones who came to the meeting with all the other senior leaders and just did that, just said, like, like I'm really sorry, maybe I'm stupid, but I don't, I don't know what this means. Um, and, and the ones that were respected were the ones who would say that, listen, keep asking questions until they got it. And then they didn't ask the question again because it meant everybody else in the room who was thinking exactly the same thing <laughs> didn't have to put their hand up because that's just so much more terrifying. So you, it's this thing that you're taking ownership as a leader for Shared meaning is going to be one of the one of our values here, and I'm going to model how we do it. Which is, if I can't connect what you're saying something to, back to something I've got experience of, I'm going to keep asking questions until I can, and then hopefully we can find a way to connect that back to everyone else's experiences. Now, hey, now we're aligning around you know consistent language. Shared meaning. I, I, this, I love this, that. This, this shared meaning and the leadership. This is so it's a theme mm -hmm. over and over again, right? The people, the culture. And I think this is another important aspect of the culture that as leaders, we need to be able to go. We're the ones who need to be honest and no BS around this, right? We need to be the ones to say, I don't know. I don't understand. And, 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 and I tell us all the time to, to, to tell it to my students too. remember, I don't know is a perfectly valid answer. And I think that's when, when, because if we don't say, I don't know, and you think, right. And whatever, assumptions or I assume makes an ass out of you and me, that type of like, that's true. Right. I, mean, I think we really need to be able to be honest and no BS about that stuff because that's how we make sure that we do truly have a shared definition. Otherwise it's like, well, again, we're going to go off with the definition of I'm seeing here somebody in the chat of, of a hippo, the highest, highest yeah. paid person's opinion. <laughs> I like that one. Um, okay. So to get more, to get concrete here and again, honest and OBS concrete is how do we actually start uh, defining these, these shared needs like concretely? I mean, I mean, yes, we should start asking questions. We should lead by examples and we should, but yeah. what, what is the actual process? Are there techniques are there tools, technologies? I mean, in your experience, like if we want to go start really documenting, cataloging this, what what what, what have you learned, observed in, in in your career? What can you share? So one, so I mean, I'll tell you where where I started from. I I began life in a big consultancy doing transformation type work, and just got I got fed up with it. The just the the level of just going to meetings and coming out feeling like I don't think anybody got anything from that meeting and then being vindicated that, yeah, really, you, you talk to people afterwards and nobody did get anything from that meeting. So why did we have the meeting? Why did nobody else? And I'm the most junior person here and I, I can't. So I got a bit fed up with this and ended up, I ended up running the creative department for the the um, the consultancy because that was just much, much more interesting. Um, but what I found was <clears throat> I could bring the two things back together by, um, drawing pictures of what people were saying, basically. So what I'd do was I'd listen to the leaders talking through their strategies, their roadmaps, whatever it was. And because I was the person who was perceived to be the artist, um, even though I was, you know, a lot of experience as a business analyst, I knew most of what they were talking about. It meant that I got away with asking those questions 
that other people would struggle with. You know, I could just say like, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can't actually draw that. I don't, I just don't know what it looks like if you describe it to me. Like, what would I, so in this new, new era that you're saying we're going to get to by doing this big change, um, what would I actually see that's different? Um, what, you know, what, what would I feel? What would I, if I go back into the office of these people whose lives are transformed, you know, what is obviously different about it than what was before? Can you, can you bring it to life? And I realized that the people who were the best leaders, they could do that because um, they could see it in their mind. They knew exactly what it was they were trying to get to. Um, and then others just couldn't. And that was really awkward because then you get back to this identity thing. You don't want to say, look, sorry, but you, know, you don't actually have a vision. You don't know where you're trying to get to. But it was true. And that's such. I mean, so there's a couple of things coming out of this. One is that you have to find people who do have a connection back to an experience, either of something that they're perceiving, if it's a future-oriented thing, or something that they've actually done. Um, because otherwise, you're just you're just shooting around in circles. But the second thing is, you know, you you your drawing's great. I mean, uh, yeah, pick up a pencil and start doodling i mean it, it, you know, it, it, and there's lots of like this whole ecosystem around visual thinking that you can tap into if it's something that you're interested in exploring but the thought process of just you know if i was to to depict this in some way what would it look like changes the sorts of questions that you ask because if you meet an abstract concept with an equally abstract level of questioning you know unless you're absolutely certain that what they mean by the abstraction is what you mean by the abstraction because maybe you're, you're part of the same tribe and that's that's fine um the danger is you can think you're talking about the same things but you're actually just you're talking past each other so yeah i think your visualization is, is for us has always been our go-to way of connecting things back to experience because you, know, you may say tomato i may say tomato maybe we're talking about the same thing but you know if i show you a picture of a red thing which no one's quite sure if it's a fruit or a vegetable but yeah you know, one of those things and you've we've all eaten one then we all know what we're talking about right that, okay so i'm gonna repeat the, these two things in my words one is uh you want to be around really the subject matter expert right for for the domain that we're talking about trying to understand and i think and if there's multiple subject matter experts you want to be around those and second to i think the the technique or the tool here to go figure out what this sheer meaning is is literally drawing it's literally going on the whiteboard and, and, and I, I, we always say the bubbles and lines you do on the whiteboard, but maybe it's literally like, draw me the picture of what you mean, right? And, and I think in the past conversation we've had, Steve, is like, this is why if, we, if we're talking about the abstract and we're like, well, draw that. Well, drawing something abstract is really hard. And therefore, if you're forced to go draw it, you're forced to bring it back down to reality. And that's how we really truly understand it. I think this is this is fantastic advice, right? Is if you're really trying to go understand and, and generate shared understanding, shared meaning, one, be around the people who really know what they're doing, have the experience around it, those subject matter experts. And second, let's focus on drawing. I love that. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be you doing the drawing, right? I I mean as a whole I am. Um, I, I. I'm very into my um, systems science, systems theory, and, and various systems practices. There's a whole um, methodology called uh, soft systems, soft systems methodology, where one of the key inquiry tools that's used is a technique called rich pictures, where you get the you, know, you get the whole system in a room, and as much as you can, um, you all the people who are involved in what, whatever your problematic situation is, you're, you're investigating, and you get them to draw out how it feels from their perspective. Um, so it's like it's the ultimate way of ensuring you're not pushing your meaning into their domain. Um, and then you compare all of these pictures to see what what are the common patterns here, because there may be concepts that and this is something that happens over and over again. We find when you start drawing things, there may be concepts that don't yet have labels that are really important because there's some pattern that's showing up. But we can't actually talk about it yet because it hasn't been named. But everyone's kind of aware there's a problem in between. Is there, like, there's a gap here that there's a but we don't, we don't know what to call that yet. We haven't created the PowerPoint slide for it. But by going in with that sort of much more um, curious mindset and seeing what comes out from other people doing um, that sort of exercise where it's, it's non-linear, it's, non it's creative, um, can show up new things that you didn't realize were there. You know, I want to extend this commentary around drawing a little bit here. And you've gone into some of this here with like the rich, uh, the rich pictures kind of concept, right? 
Um, how liberally can we really think of this concept of drawing? Like, for example, you know, getting in front of the, of the whiteboard, is this like one of the, the modes that can be feeling like this drawing concept? You know, the idea of the product manager working the design with the designer to create the mock-up that now creates alignment between the designer and the product manager to then show the prospective customer and get alignment there, right? Um, yeah. You know, is is it things like, memes right in, my, in our powerpoint presentations we try to stick memes in there not just because it's funny and prevents people from going to sleep but also because there's meaning inherent to some of these memes that give you a feeling that you're like oh right yeah this is what we're talking about or like no that doesn't make sense yeah. what do you think about all that well look you just use the word feeling there right it gives you a feeling and it, it so I, I don't i mean i'm not here to evangelize for drawing i, I mean i think it's it's great it's, it's something that we do a lot of um but the feeling you get when something connects back to your experience is to me that that is what meaning is you know it's it's that subjective experience of ah i i get what you're saying and it matters so i often say this to 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 to, to clients and to to students that you rather than seeing meaning as like a philosophical semantic thing where you know we're, we're looking up dictionary definitions and getting a consistent glossary and taxonomy, all that sort of stuff. If you think of it in an embodied way, it's something that you sense with your body. If you're, if you're in a meeting and people are having a meaningful conversation, you can tell just by looking at the bodies because they're doing this and they're thinking, yeah, and that, and, that, and they're like, because there's something that they're, 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 there's a connection between people and you feel it inside yourself. Whereas if you're, if the meeting is just BS, because if some salesperson is trying to use some you know new bit of jargon like yeah you know, we can go through all our favorite favorite buzzwords of but it's just reinventing the same thing and we put a few other concepts into the framework and we've come up with some other metaphor some word that's vacant and no one's using it and we'll stick that and we'll put the word data in front of it or digital in front of it or something and <laughs> now it's a new concept what is it really and we have to sit and listen to someone for 45 minutes give a presentation about this thing and you just look around and everyone's like well there's just there is no meaning right so i think <laughs> Starting with it, this is a feeling, it's something you sense with your body, then it gives you a grip on what shared meaning is, because shared meaning is when you can sense that we're all, we, we're getting that sensation together, and that gives you the motivation then to, well, let's go and do something, let's make something happen, there's excitement and energy, because our words are meeting one another and turning into new concepts, and it's exciting. Oh, I'm 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 well, I'm, I'm typing here, here notes. I'm, I lo I love this last part. Shared meaning is when we all get the same feeling of excitement together. I mean, that's actually kind of a that, that's a that's a great indicator that we know that oh, we're finally coming to an agreement here. But again, I want to drill down more and get even more honest and OBS on this on because I, I really want to kind of be very tactical, tangible on kind of takeaways. So. Let's say uh, we want to come up with the, sh the famous thing about what is a customer, right? There you go. Everybody has a different definition for a customer. So how do we get to a shared meaning of a customer via drawing? How do we draw what a customer is and come to that shared meaning? Uh, yeah, how would that happen? <laughs> so, well, I mean, it depends. So, so like, like, why do we have different definitions of what a customer are? It's you know, because each tribe has its own sense of, well, usually, each tribe has its own sense of who the customer is, dependent on you know what what what's most important to them. But you have to take it back up to what's the you know, like what's 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 the level. Let me introduce another concept because I the, the trouble is I, I can answer this the way we do it, but we do it in a very idiosyncratic sort of way that's probably quite hard to repeat because it requires all of these things coming together at the same time. But um, like so, the, the the other thing that we rely on very heavily is the idea of maps. So you, you, if you think geographically, um, when you want to do something in a physical, uh, you want to, you know, I don't know, build a new building or put a new road down or what, um, you get shared meaning by going back to the things that you know people aren't going to disagree about. So we generally don't believe that map vendors are trying to mislead us all. So we assume that when we pull up the map of where it is, that we're, we know that those concepts are consistent. Um, so what we're always trying to do is to build what, 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 what's the most detailed map we can create of this domain that everybody will agree to, you know, and in that sense, then, well, where are the customers on that map? Well, what's the overall frame for it? What's the framing that, that you would build the map around that everyone makes sense? Is it a supply chain for a lot of your um, um, uh, clientele? I'm guessing 
probably it is. I don't know. But yeah, we work with a lot of um, government departments where it becomes a little bit harder to tell, like where you know, some of them don't even see themselves as housing customers. Some of them are. Um, but you need to come up with a framing reference that, that makes sense that people can then start to locate themselves around so that, oh, yeah, OK, end customers are over there or maybe end customers are at the top or, you know, and this, the, the thing with a map is that the locations have to have consistent meaning. So maybe it's, you know, I don't know, vertical is, maybe it's value. Or if you've, um, uh, uh, um, I've forgotten the chat's name. So let me follow up on this, kind of give an example if I understand this. So let's let's follow up with the example of a customer. If we were going to go to draw our map around this, and as you mentioned, like the supply chain or whatever, we know that, Hey, there is a customer. They can go to a website and they can go navigate through, na navigate through things and they, they can go put things in a shopping cart and they can go buy things, right? And then that go then that that purchases that goes through some shipping or whatever. Then someone needs to go package that and needs to get shipped. It, yep. it gets delivered and then the customer finally gets that delivered and so forth, right? So we can draw this whole out. And then somebody says, well, okay, given that drawing of that map that literally happened, so what is a customer for you? And then yep. you can say, well, the customer is any person on the website. Okay. All right. For you know, any person who clicked checkout on the website, or any person who got the package delivered, right? Any person who actually paid for it, even though it hasn't been delivered. So if when you start drawing, so that drawing that I wrote is, those are just facts. These are things that we know that occur all the time. We, we, we all agree on that. And then based on that, even if you I can now imagine drawing this whole thing like a graph on your whiteboard, somebody can go in and draw a circle around this part. Like, that's what I mean as a, as a customer. Um, I know I'm waving my hands around here for, for the <laughs> folks who are just listening to us. But um, based on what you saw, Steve, and my hands waving and what I'm saying, does this align with what you're, what you're saying, what you're thinking and saying? Yeah, spot on, spot on. I mean, it, it, I, I mean, it depends how far you want to go into all the, the, the visualization side of it, but there there is a whole, you know, there's a whole universe of techniques that I, I, you know, I think are yet to be discovered in using visualization to much, much better effect. Because um, you, you just like to take um, uh, data and knowledge graphs, you're, you're, you know, what do you end up with with the typical visualization of, um, of a semantic graph? It's, it's, it's like sort of lots of spaghetti joining things together, right? Um, and then you're looking for trends, but it's very good. It doesn't, it's very, you, you have to make a leap of abstraction to connect it back to something that you have experience of. And the, you know, for me, the, 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 the underlying reason why we're doing all of this work and trying to you know, play around with this, this shared meaning problem is, my perception is that um, the big challenges that most organizations struggle with are they're not point challenges, they're, um, they're systemic issues, right? They cut across the tribal boundaries and you can't actually solve them while the tribes are all speaking different languages. So this whole idea of a map is, well, can we get the different tribes to come together and agree that there's a bigger map that they all belong to, they can identify themselves on, and then can you start to trace out where the patterns of problems are? Because it's just, yeah, I, I think this is not, it's not just an organizational problem, problem it's a societal problem, but you, you, one simple definition of an organization would be it's, it's, a, you know, it's a series of tribes that are all blaming each other for why things are wrong, and nothing can change while that's happening. And I also think that there is like this... Um expectation nowadays right that we want things just to go work and be fast so yeah just give me a definition and let's just go with that and, and, and without realizing that no there's multiple definitions and there's implications if we have those and there's the ones that we think right now with between the folks in this room but i, I like how you're using this word tribes because this is a great way of thinking about it uh I mean, we, we we're hearing more about the words of the different domains within an organization, but I mean, this is not this is not just a situation that occurs within the enterprise and companies. I mean, within our own society, our own cultures, our own communities, our families, right? And we are a, a, a set of tribes. Um, but so one of the things I wanted to get to is on the different kind of personas or 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 the folks who are actually doing this type of work who are facilitating 
yeah. this uh, this meeting that's occurring and go draw on the whiteboard, right? I, I'm super excited about this every this whole conversation because it aligns to a lot of the stuff that I always people know me talking about the knowledge engineer and the knowledge scientist and kind of like yeah. this yeah. lost art that was a big thing in the '90s with like expert systems and stuff that I feel that is now coming back. How, how do you see the roles coming in right now? And, and, and who, who, who are the ones who are best prepared to, to be able to go define this shared meaning? Yeah, I, I'd love to hear from you about that as well, because I, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think it's a role that it, it needs to exist. You know, where, where are all of the, the, the recruitment ads on LinkedIn for whatever you're going to call them, knowledge scientists did? Well, in fact, perfect example of what I was saying before. What is the agreed term, Right. Yeah, you know, like, 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 look at all of the jargon coming out recently around, you know, like, I don't know, we can pick our favorite um, nonsense words. Um, but I tell you my favorite one, because I was writing about this recently, is uh, digital twins, digital twins of organizations. Like, what is that? Well, it's a dashboard, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, but because it's got some currency, that means all the people who make dashboards now suddenly magically make digital twins of organizations, right? And you, I think there's so many examples of this of like, you're doing the same thing, but you have to come up with a fancy new word for it. Um, so so let, let's, just, let's just invent one. Um, sorry, I've forgotten what your question was again. <laughs> Going off on a bit of a tangent. Well, so what, what are the roles that you're seeing or, or what are the types yeah, of roles? Um, yeah, so sorry. So that's a really good example of it. Is once that thing has a name, once it has a concept, then you can advertise for what it is. So is it going to be, you know, you know, one if you want to call it a knowledge scientist, Tim, if you want to call it a data product manager, yeah. But you actually have to have one label if you're going to advertise it. It's going to gain, gain shared meaning so people know what they're recruiting. But it, you know, the the I tend to I've spent my career wandering between you know, professional tribes, and I've you know the last few years I've wandered into the the, the data um, area of it very interesting results. But the same problem exists everywhere else, right? And you, what you find is that in each tribe, people get to the boundaries of their tribal affiliation and they look outside into the world and they realize, hang on, we're part of a bigger ecosystem and we need to, be, we need to find ways of modeling how we fit in there. So if you're in IT, you, know, you typically end up in enterprise architecture or business architecture or something like that, because you realize the business doesn't understand us. We don't really understand the business. And then your solution ends up being, well, let's, yeah, uh, anyway, let, don't get me going on enterprise architecture, but you end up with another big complex model with IT at the bottom, right? And you have to understand some surrogate UML version language thing and have a diploma to understand the model. But you know, never mind that. We've built a model of the business. And now that's our map. And now we can zoom back out and then we can make sense of where we are in relation. Like nobody understands your map, right? Or if you're, in, if you're an engineer, you'll get into systems engineering and you'll start applying systems engineering and SysML or whatever your, your, your preferred native tongue is. And then you'll start building a model of how the whole business fits together. And look, hey, we build a model. This is how it all works. And nobody understands your model. Or you're a business analyst and you'll start building these big BPMN models. Or you're, a, or you're a, an, uh, on the other side, on the, the social side of it, you're a, an HR person or an OD person. And you start getting into systems practice. Maybe you start building lots of rich pictures of things or systems dynamics models. Or you, and like everybody, we've built the model of how it all fits. Like nobody understands your model, right? Because none of the symbols that are being used in any of those cases are data science. Like, what, what's that going to look like? Are you going to end up building a whole ontology and expecting people to you know, understand OWL? Or are you like, how is that? You know, that's the danger is that when people go outside of the tribe and let's, let's map this whole terrain and then we can all get together and talk about it, is that the only language you've got is the language of your tribe. Right? This and is, somehow this is, this is the boiling the ocean problem right now. I think this is. This is a, a perfect exa uh, example, I would say, that why you can't boil the ocean because that means if, if you're trying to draw out the entire ocean with your own language of your tribe, but guess what? That ocean is so many different tribes. So by definition, you won't understand what's going on because you need to go speak other people's languages about that stuff. So by definition, I mean... Go, go, go try to boil your own tribe's little ocean, your little pond first, right? Uh, and even that's going to be a challenge. You still break that into... Yeah, the, the, the ocean isn't really an ocean. It's a bunch of ponds, right? It's a bunch of smaller things that come together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so what, one of the things I wanted to get into uh, before we want to get into our lightning round is you wrote this really, really, really insightful post on whose line is it anyway? a couple of weeks ago, I think. And um, 
and it, this actually reminds me of back in the back in the seventies. Uh, when I think so in the, in the 60s, there was this big kind of work in computer science around semantic networks, right? So people like this is how do we represent knowledge? It's you draw you draw little things on the white, well, on the blackboard, right? Uh, uh, so you would create these semantic networks. But then there was this big article, a paper by, I think, William Woods uh, in the early 70s, which was a critique on semantic networks that was called, what is a link? And basically it's like if you say, uh, a person lives in a city, right? And you just say a person, arrow, lives in city. What does that actually mean? Does it mean a person lives in a city? Do you mean all people live in all cities? Does a person live in one city or multiple? So what does that link actually mean? So this is something that really spawned a lot of computer science research, and especially in, in the 80s around kind of under the knowledge representation and drew the things yeah. from description logics that led to all this stuff and ontology and so forth. So when you came up with, when you wrote this article about what is this line, whose line is this anyways, it really resonated a lot with me. And, and um, I, I wrote some... I mean, I have some notes about this, about uh, kind of just let me read some things out. You said, for example, drawing lines is easy, but observing is really hard. And I think people like to go draw things about uh, they, they're drawing things about reality, but they really haven't been speaking to the rest of the tribes. And then they realize that what they drew uh, isn't really representative of what, the, what has happened in reality. And then suddenly these things that we don't really represent reality somehow end up becoming reality. And we never ask what these lines actually mean. And you were actually writing in that post is like, well, there are all these PowerPoint slides and there are all these lines and arrows and nobody ever stands up and says, that arrow has no term around it. What does that actually mean? And there's two arrows. Why are there two? Why aren't there three? Why are there like, so anyways, I, this was a really excellent post. Uh, you can find it on, uh, this was on, on your blog, but I'd love if you can kind of talk a little bit more about this because I just, I didn't do any good effort on, on, on summarizing it. No, that's that's great. No, I'm really pleased that you read it and got stuff out of it. Um, the that that one was percolating in my mind for a long time. It it came out of I was reading um, uh, Walter Isaacson wrote a, a biography of Leonardo da Vinci a couple of years back, and I was, I was reading it earlier in the year. And the thing that struck me was how um, his whole process ended up with these pictures that don't have lines in them. Right? He's, he's famous for this. The, all of his paintings. Um, the, the, the edges are the way they are in real real life. You know, so if you've got a sharp contrast, the, the edge is, is smooth and you get a sharp contrast, but everything is, is, is shaded perfectly. But that was his end point. What he started with, you look in his notebooks, are these just incredibly observed drawings? But it's the fact that he started with the lines, right? Whereas most of us, we end with the lines and like that, that's the reality. It's like we're doing it the other way. And it just, it, it caught my attention that the, yeah, his powers of observation were just extraordinary. I and mean, he would just sit and watch what well, actually, I, that's just not a discipline that we seem to appreciate much anymore. Like what, what's, what's the practical disciplines that each of us have to ensure that the way we're thinking things are and the way we're drawing things on Visio and PowerPoint, or whatever, what are the disciplines that we use to feed back, to check that, you know, it does that actually accord with the reality of, you know, whatever the thing is that we're drawing um, I just, yeah, again, it's something that doesn't really get talked about. Do you find that there are any tactics that help people to understand each other's different contexts and different truths, uh, you know, around, uh, around these things, um, you know, or, or is it truly, you know, culture and communication and visualization and you know is, is there anything you know specific that we can recommend to some folks that like hey like if you if you could change a couple things to help break through some of this problem here what would you kind of point to so so there's a few disciplines that we have in our company um and they're all you know there's a there's a there's a term coming back into vogue from the 60s of uh, seeing organizations as social technical systems right and the part of the problem is these two things get split apart and a lot of the practices i think on the technical side that there are practices we have on the social side if you like or how we model this that i think then will will um, have value on the technical side so the one that immediately comes to mind is uh, a practice called clean language um which is uh it's it originally came out of like uh, therapeutic contexts and it's a it's a technique where you force yourself to use this rather 
peculiar syntax <laughs> with these like 12 questions that you're allowed to ask where you, you but but it, it, it for, and you have to use it in a controlled environment it's not like something you can use with with clients um because it just sounds a bit weird but if you're in a group of people who know what they're doing um it it, it gives you a context in which your 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 job is to model the other person's um reality whatever it is that they're experiencing without putting any of your stuff into it because these questions are set up that you take whatever the you know, take key phrases, words from whatever somebody has just said, put them into these questions and play the question background. And the, way, the phrase that they use is this idea of um, exquisite attention. Can, can you pay exquisite attention to what someone's saying? Um, and you're just so curious. And it's like, you're not even interested in the person. It's just, it's the model that's arising out of what the person is saying. Um, and you get this idea that, yeah, as a, as a fundamental value that I, I don't have a right to disagree with you until I can also advocate for your position because I've modeled your model of the world so well, I can describe, I know, I can see how you, I can see why you come to that conclusion. Um, that's really, really hard to do. And it's, it's almost like training wheels, that whole technique that changes the way you pay attention to people and the way you ask questions. And um, and I guess you have know, to, to pull this back into data because I, yeah, I don't want to go too far off down a different direction. The, 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 Data has so much potential to to democratize and to bring shared meaning and to, but I think it's it's almost like um, the how how good the water feels downstream depends on what happened at the very top, right? So when you're building your schemas, your ontologies, your your all of those source things, you're you're segmenting your data. Well, you're doing all of that stuff at the start of the journey, which is then going to you're hoping bear fruit later. What's the quality of conversations you're having up front there? Because that's then going to determine how meaningful things are downstream. It seems to me I mean, that's that's the conjecture. I love these as as some suggestions that things can take advantage of here, and and that concept of clean language seems like the kind of thing that you know if 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 your organization's thinking of doing some cultural exercises, you know, rather than doing trust falls, maybe you should think about doing a little bit of some tree some clean language exercises, um, <laughs> and um, you know, socio technical systems. I love that comment as well because I think it's one of the reasons why you know both Juan and I have uh, addressed this topic a few times in our show, and also the community obviously is getting very interested in this. The concept of the data mesh, right? Um, and Jamak and the whole community describes that as a socio-technology phenomenon framework, right? Um, and, and that's different. It's a different way than people have, you know, been thinking lately about how not just technology sort of stands on its own, but it's actually part of a larger social interpersonal sort of process-oriented dynamic. Do you guys have an opinion on data mesh? You know, on the continuum from BS to no BS, whereabouts do you think it is? Well, I'll start and say that, you know, with any buzzalicious term, right, there's the there's the what's the honest no BS of it, which hopefully we've been tapping into a little bit with this show. And then what's the, you know, just the hype around it. And, um, you know, I would say that uh, and I think, Juan, you probably feel the same way, that there's something at its core that's really, really powerful here that isn't necessarily new. Right. Like we've been talking about uh, for many, many years how to handle companies as they scale and distributed meaning and distributed uh, data systems. Right. It's just a matter of like, how do we bring that together in a way that doesn't just fall apart five years later and we got to blow it up and then do a whole new architecture all over again. Right. And so I, that at its core, like how do we bring a framework that actually brings some resiliency to the data stack seems super, super interesting from my perspective. Yeah. What, what do you so, think, Juan? So for, for me, I always summarize that there's two important things and, and that the data mesh, uh, the, <clears throat> but the, the data mesh discussion community, everybody brings up, which is super valuable that I fully agree with. One is we've got to treat data as a product. And I truly believe that the say that we should that means you should be able to go get find use data the same way you buy anything on Amazon. That should be the experience. That's number one. Mm -hmm. um, and second, it's understanding and finding that balance between decentralization and centralization. And that is going to change once yeah. you're depending on your culture. Depending on how the, your growth of your company, you, I would argue that you may not be a data mesh if you're a smaller company because you're all centralized. But the moment that you you realize that you're getting bigger, you need to decentralize. You're going to want to start having that type of, of of decentralization. I still think you should always 
try to go treat data as a product. Now, note that everything I said has nothing to do with technology. And I do call BS on people who vend, who are vendors of data mesh. That is BS. And people, please run away, run away so fast from anybody who's selling you a data, uh, who's selling you a data mesh product. Please run away. Uh, that, I, that I say. There are different tools that you need, and then you're different ways of go implementing them. And then I think on the on, on on kind of a lot of the BS stuff that's that's happening is, as as technologists we all get excited about the technology part. We all talk about the self service stuff, and 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 I'll call, actually I'll, I'll call out even the same ThoughtWorks folks and Shamak too that they've been talking about this and presenting all these webinars, and they go off showing all these diagrams and architectures, and they even themselves they say that the most important thing, the enabler of everything, is this federated computational governance, but nobody <laughs> actually defines what it is. And, but but I, I, I would say that, we, that I do believe that that is true, that we need to, that the having a way of governing this in a federated manner is really important, but we haven't even figured that out yet. Federated computational is, governance is a very important green box that we need to fully figure out. <laughs> excellent, excellent way of, of that. So anyways, that, that's our thoughts. Let's uh, throw it back to you, Steve. What, what are your thoughts about data mesh? I'm, I'm, so, so I'm curious, I mean, I'm curious on lots of, lots of fronts. I think the distributed governance is the thing that really interests me. I think there's a, there's a, there's a um, famous um, theorem in systems uh, uh, science called um, Conant-Ashby theorem, which says that you, um, you cannot, uh, you cannot regulate a system without a good model of the system. Simplistically, that's what it says. Um, and the trouble with that is that, you know, if your system is an entire organization, like how does that govern itself? You have to have a model of it. Which, you know, and organizations end up becoming like models of themselves. You get to board level and or exact level and everyone's trying to manage it and everyone has their own little bit that they're trying to. And you, we try and imagine these big pyramid structures and it just doesn't work because the thing is just too complex, which is why yeah, all the things I was saying before, enterprise architecture models, you have these team of like a dozen people trying to keep this model up to date with this huge enterprise. <laughs> it's changing way, way faster than you. So it has to be distributed what the model is. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm interested for new new ways of approaching that. Um, I'm also, you know, to bring it back to the, 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 the whole meaning area, I get immediately skeptical when I hear when, when it feels like there's a there's a powerful metaphor or a powerful picture that's being used. Um, so like mesh, let's add mesh, let's put data in front of it. Well, mesh is a metaphor. It's another you know, simple principle you can use a lot is to work much more with metaphors, but notice them because all language is metaphorical to some degree. Um, but it's quite, it's a powerful, it's a resonant image. You can sort of imagine that a mesh, that's that's nice. Yeah, what if it was more like a mesh and less like a lake? And then your meshes don't feel like they'll turn into swamps with time. Meshes feel more sort of fluid. And you, so it's a very, you know, it, it's a very generative metaphor, which gives it, you know, it's, it, you're talking about memes, Tim, that gives it some mimetic advantage compared to its competitors. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right, right? It just means that lots of other lots of people will then jump on it and use and you ride the wave of that meaning just because the metaphor is powerful. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting how much words matter in not just in general, but even just within the space and the discourse between technologists as we talk about things like data meshes or, you know, data lakes became really valuable. And then it was like, well, what about the data lake house? Oh, well, the data lake house is better, right? Because now you've got a house on the lake, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's just, uh, I don't know, we could have an entire, I'm sure an entire episode just talking about these funny yeah. terms that we have going I on. Think we, should, we should do that one day. Does that have kind of funny <laughs> puns and stuff? All right. I, see, I, I, we knew that we could talk for hours and hours about this stuff, and we're just barely scratch, scratching the surface on this so uh, we're gonna hit, hit our, our lightning uh round here kind of really snappy so I'll, I'll kick it off you mentioned shared meaning should be a principle in your company do you think this should literally be written in like data policies and your your company's culture code yes or I have, yeah when i'm king that will be the rule love it go awesome. tim uh can i train myself to be better at visual communication through drawing and other means is that a skill you can build yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, as I said, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of people trading in that area. I mean, the simplest thing is, you know, because people are scared because they remember when they were at you know, junior school and they couldn't draw. Um, you don't have to be able to draw. You just need a sim sufficient lexicon of very simple things that you can draw that cover the domain of interest. And you just practice them. And then that, yeah, you're good to go. Got it. Third question. Will an increased focus on semantics and knowledge graphs in AI lead to greater shared meaning? 
it depends. So we didn't really get into this, but the whole interface between the two, I just, I mean, I, I don't, I'd, I'd love to turn this lightning question back to you guys because you, you, you know, you're more experts on the on the technical side of this than I am. I love to know who else is working in this in the other direction because it seems like a pretty pretty barren area as far as I can tell in in, in progress. But until that until that connection is, yeah, the, the machines are not going to save us. The machines are not going to save us. And without fully answering that question, I'll say that obviously catalog and glossary connected to meaning, connected to your data, some of what we're thinking about in this area. Um, fourth question, final question here, lightning round. Um, will a person in the organization, whether it's the CDO, the head of analytics, somebody who doesn't exist yet, should they be the steward of shared meaning? Hmm. Um, yes, I'll, I'll, let me take that in an, in an interesting different direction because I've had this conversation with a few clients over time. Um, and one of my clients came up with a very interesting repost, which was that there's, can I make this slightly longer? Can I go for one minute? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, he said, like, if you imagine... Uh, we now have chief finance officers, but there was a time when chief finance officer didn't exist, right? There was a time pre whatever, you know, Florentines invented double entry bookkeeping when bookkeeping didn't exist. There wasn't such a thing, right? And then it grows over time and now we have a chief finance officer. And he said, it feels like there, at some point in the future, you will have some equivalent of a, like a chief purpose officer. And they're the person who makes sure that the, the, the feedback loops are working so that the organization is actually achieving its, its stated purpose and not just pretending to, right? Um, but but the, the, the shared that's where the shared meaning thing would lie because you need a connection. You know, everyone talks about line of sight and alignment and are we all you know, aligned to our strategic objective? You should be, everyone should be aligned to the purpose to know how what they do connects up to the overall objectives of the enterprise. You can't do that unless there's a linguistic link of shared meaning between what I do and the overall purpose that that person is caring about. So that's probably where it belongs in the future. For now, chief data officer is probably a, a reasonable place at the minute. Interesting. I love the term purpose here. I haven't heard you know, chief purpose officer before. So that's a, a good one for us and, and all our listeners to noodle about here. It's uh, TTT. Tim takes it away with takeaways first. Sure. So, oh my gosh, so much going on here. I feel like I need another drink to process it all. Um, you know, people um, are obviously a key part of what we're talking about here, right? And the dynamics between people, whether just the way we communicate, the power dynamics, the words that we choose that we don't choose. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's just the people aspect, right? We didn't even really get into today the sort of the machine aspect and how that brings a whole nother sort of dimension of complexity here. Um, and people assume that meaning and having meaningful communication is just semantics and words. But I think really my key takeaway here is that it's not just words, right? There's a whole... Uh, incredible other set of dimensions here that you kind of referred to as like the identity expressed in words that comes to play here. And we need to be cognizant of that, aware of it. We need to practice thinking about and listening about it. And we really need to codify that. Um, so that was that was a really big set of takeaways for me. Um, Juan, what about you? What were your, your key takeaways? I, I got three main ones. One, meaning is when it's connected to experiences. So how do you know that your experience is the same as someone else's experience? You need to have that discussion. Uh, different definitions of the customers because each tribe has different experiences. And, it, and meaning is a subjective experience itself, right? Oh, I got uh, their aha moment. I get what you mean, right? And that actually matters. So when we get to shared meaning, right? This is, this is when we start having the same feeling together around that and where you get that excitement. Uh, and, and, and the way to create share, shared meaning, if we don't have it right now, is to go back to something that we already agree on, so I have some shared meaning, and build upon that. And right, this is the principle. This should be a principle within your company. And leaders need to take ownership for that shared meaning, right? If they don't understand something, you stand up and you say, I don't understand. Please explain. Keep going. And how do we do this in practice? There's two things you said. You need to center around a person who really knows what they're doing, who have that experience, or that subject matter expert. And second, drawing. Drawing is great. Go literally put this on the whiteboard. Go draw, create the map of your stuff. And, and you can't govern a system without knowing what that map actually looks like. So you're able to go draw that. 
That's our takeaway. Steve, we're going to throw it back to you really quickly. Two questions. What's your advice? And two, who should we invite next? So advice, uh, I think you nailed it, Juan. Connect to experience. Don't assume that other people have the experiences as you. Um, find your own way of doing that. We use drawing, that experiment. You'll know when it happens. Um, who else should we invite? First person should invite is that the, the client I mentioned who talked about chief Pur purpose officer. So um, one of a, a sort of handful of clients who who blow my mind occasionally with the, you know, how far ahead they're thinking are in their domain. And that's a guy called um, Davin Crowley-Sweet, who's the chief data officer at um, Highways, the, the organization that runs all of the highways here in the in the UK, manages and maintains them. Um, he's just a fascinating guy and yeah, great to, to talk to. Um, other person I'd recommend is a guy over in Belgium called Ivo, Ivo Velichkov, who is, yeah, just possibly the single most erudite person I've ever met. <laughs> His day job is working with knowledge, implementing knowledge graphs, but like um, in terms of all the systems theory stuff I was just touching on, you know, it's just incredibly well-read and, you know, the half of what he says that I understand blows my mind. So in terms of thought leadership, he's somewhere away over the horizon. So, you know, it might be too far away for now, but you know, I think we're all trying to catch up with them. Love it. Steve, wow. thank you so much. This was a fascinating discussion. Amazing conversation. Cheers. Love it. This Cheers. is Catalog and Cocktails. Don't forget to subscribe.